us bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for bringing us here. Thank you for moments in time like this. Thank you for giving us truth. Thank you for being just with us, fair with us, by your own standards, of course. You love us. You bless us with an abundance of grace, Father. You reveal your mercy in doing so because we know that we are unworthy of any of this, Father. No matter how difficult life can be, you've got our backs. This we know. Father, we pray for those in the congregation that aren't here with us this evening, that you return them to the fold in good timing, your timing, of course. We pray for those in this world that are still lost without hope, that they be healed in the most magnificent way of all before it's too late. We are most grateful and thankful, of course, for your son's work on the cross to cancel out that debt, to make an evening like this just a time to sit back and rejoice and have our tanks refilled. Father, you know better than any of us how difficult it can be day in and day out, but by grace we are what we are. We do just ask for blessings on this evening's message. May it be edifying for our souls. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit we do pray. Amen. Again, part 70. I'm going to start off with something that is simple but yet freeing, but at face value, it doesn't sound freeing at all if I was to say this on the street corner of your choice, uh, and then took a poll about whether or not what I just said was freeing, I think the average person would say no. We are slaves. We are slaves. And that, my friends, is very freeing. Very freeing indeed. We are slaves, whether it's a slave to unrighteousness or righteousness, one way or another, we are slaves. Up here on the board, and this is from Sunday's message, slavery is real for you. Don't shy away from it. Embrace it. Say, this is, a wonder, this is wonderful news. This is wonderful news. That Jesus Christ is my master. Because there are a lot of masters out there that are terrible. Sometimes it's ourselves. Sometimes we're our own worst enemy. Sometimes it's individuals in our homes. Sometimes it's people at work. I don't know about you, but I'm really glad 
that Jesus Christ is my master and that I'm his slave. Since Christ has redeemed you from the slave market of sin, you are his possession, Titus 2.14. There are eternal implications of this that you ought to be ever so grateful for. Being a slave of Christ is the best thing you could ever hope to be. The alternative is being a slave to sin, according to Holy Scripture. That's Romans 1.16. And just consider those implications. A slave to sin, the ultimate taskmaster, the unyielding taskmaster, the one that makes you miserable. I don't want to be a slave to that. Go to Romans 6.16. Romans 6.16, so I don't know about you, but that's really good news that I'm a slave. As a believer in Christ, I am a slave of Christ, and this is wonderful news. Romans 6.16, do you not know? that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. Did you know? Sin, death. Slave of sin, death. Slave of righteousness, Life in Christ Jesus. Our master has purchased us out of the slave market of sin. We are, as a result, his slaves. In other words, slaves of righteousness, as Paul writes in a moment. Look at verse 17. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and, having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations, for just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. <clears throat> For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. <coughs> Excuse me. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Again, the point on the board. Since Christ has redeemed you from the slave market of sin, <clears throat> you are his possession. These are eternal, or there are eternal, eternal implications of this that you ought to be ever so grateful for. Being a slave of Christ is the best thing you could ever hope to be. And just look at the alternative. 
So we ought to rightly think of our slavery as being a privilege even. Go to 1 Peter 2.9. 1 Peter 2.9, it's actually a privilege to be a slave of Christ. It's not a burden. Christ said himself, you know, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. It's not a burden to be a slave of his. doesn't mean we do nothing. We're still yoked. Remember that whole series. We're still yoked, just not unequally with the things of this world that drag us down. 2 Peter 2.9, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And again, that just establishes that we are his possession. I don't know about you, but I really like that idea. I really like the idea. I have thrown out with, uh, I guess, due course and learning Holy Scripture, I am my own man. You know that saying? That usually comes from an area, a deeply rooted area of arrogance. I'm my own man. I'm a self-made man. I'm, you know, you know. That usually carries with it some form of arrogance. And what the Bible has taught me is I'm not my own man. You're not your own person, man or woman. You're Christ. You're his possession. He purchased you. And that's a really, really good thing because if we're our own master, we're terrible. Amen? We're terrible. Sunday's message really drove this point home. Go to Ephesians 2, verse 10. Ephesians 2, verse 10. And so what you start figuring out is like, Wait a minute, if I had to choose between being a slave to Christ and being a slave to myself, I'm going to choose Christ every day and twice on Sunday. You see? Ephesians 2.10 For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. In other words, we have purpose, that we should walk in them. And so you have to ask yourself, and this was the part of the conclusion from Sunday of this past week, really, is are you grateful? Are you happy that you're his slave? Are you happy to be his slave. I think once you understand the truth of the matter, you're rejoiced over the fact. You're loving it. So that's where this idea of perspective comes in. Because once you're saved, you're his. Whether you know it or not, that's another story. Whether you have the right perspective or not, that's another story. Perspective is everything. Up here on the board, Good perspective guarantees good living. Guaranteed. Doesn't mean you're going to have a life without challenges. Doesn't mean you're going to, you know, grow up and it's just going to be completely seamless without any potholes or speed bumps or bruises or cuts or pain and suffering. We know that that's definitely not the case. 
but good perspective guarantees good living. And good living means you're just able to take on whatever the world throws at you, which is a lot. But that's a heck of a lot better than the next person who does not have Christ and does not have truth that sets them free. And so good perspective guarantees good living. Here's the practical advice we received from the Spirit up here on the board. And it's just a practical technique. Focus on loving others while God loves you. How about that? Nice and simple. Focus on loving others while God loves you. Nice little strategy. If you get hung up, if you're depressed or you're self-absorbed, um, stop, take a deep breath and say, who can I express my love to this day? And the first thing that happens is you get your eyes off of yourself and the pity party ends. You realize that there are people in this world that have it much, much, much worse than you. Much worse than you. I know you're saying, I don't see how that's possible. Some of you are like, I don't see that. Oh, it's possible. Have you been shot at today? Anybody try to kill you today? Anybody try to burn you? Punch you in the face? Berate you? I don't know, tie you to a bumper and drag you around a few miles till you're at the edge of death? Anybody do that? Anybody, anybody experience that? That stuff happens all the time. Just because the person refuses to denounce that they're a Christian. And I'm not trying to belittle your own pain because I know people have real pain in here. That's not the point at all. So I hope you get the point. It's really about up here. It's about perspective. It's about having a technique, a strategy that allows you to transcend even your own circumstances. And it begins with taking your eyes off of yourself. I know that's hard sometimes, but you take your eyes off yourself and you pour your love on others and you let God take care of you. And you trust him and you say, I believe in you, Lord. You saved me. Now you will save me daily. I trust you. So because I trust you, I can take eyes off of concern for myself and start concerning myself with others. And lo and behold, I'm blessed. That's what the Spirit's been teaching us. And the beautiful thing about that is you don't really have to have much more than you to love someone else. You don't need money. You don't need... Uh, influence. You don't need any of the stuff that the world highly esteems. You just need you. You just need to show up sometimes. Brendan, were your ears burning the other day? He's like, uh, no. They should have been. I was talking about you. Why? Because there he sits, right? He's a quiet gentleman, good man. Doesn't say much, just kind of comes and sits there. I'm encouraged by it. doesn't have to say much. Just his presence is enough. Just him being here faithfully is enough. Do you understand? That's love, I guess. I'm sure he's come here when he hasn't felt like it. 
something inside of him said, you know what, it's the right thing to do. Maybe I'm going to do it to encourage pastor. Maybe I'm going to do it to encourage other people in the congregation. Maybe I'm going to do something that has nothing to do with me other than me expressing my love for the body of Christ. How about that? Sometimes all you have to do, my friends, is show up. You don't have to be all magnificent. I don't even care. Just, just wear deodorant. <laughs> you know, that one's tough. But, hey, look, if it's between deodorant and coming here, just get the heck with the deodorant. Just sit up over here somewhere. Sit, no, sit right next to Tammy. Focus on loving others while God loves you. And this goes, by the way, for all people. And this is where it gets difficult because we don't like everyone. We just don't. I mean, I'd be willing to bet one of you in here at some point in your life could not stand me. All right, so Tammy's over here nodding. But you know what I'm getting at, right? You don't have to like me to sit there and get the truth. Amen? You don't. That's not why you're here. You're not here because of my personality, which is just amazing, by the way. But <laughs> You know what I'm saying, right? You, I, you shouldn't be here because of my personality. You should be here because you know I teach the truth. And that's it. If I stop teaching the truth, go somewhere else. Honestly, I haven't. I can tell you that honestly, filled with the Spirit, I haven't. I've done my best all these years, um, and most of you know that. So this goes for all people, not just the ones we like. We're to express our love to all people. So let's read that passage from Jesus that we ended with on Sunday. Go to Luke 6.31. Luke 6.31. Luke 631, and as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. Jesus said, but love your enemies and do good. doesn't mean hang around with them. It doesn't even mean love them personally. It means, and I've taught you this, it means love the way he loved. Love because of who you are. Because that kind of love, that Christ-like love, can't help but express itself. And it's not dependent on others. It's dependent on you. That's how you love your enemies. Love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. You see that? That's objective giving. In the most practical sense, that's objective giving. 
That's the kind of love I just described, objective love, loving because of who you are, not because of the subject of your love, or the object of your love, I should say, but because of who you are. Okay? Love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. Because as soon as you expect something in return, it just turned into subjective love. And now it really is about that other person, no longer about you, etc., etc. And your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for He is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. Judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. Again, you just focus on loving others and allow God to love you. What does that mean? It means all people. That means, as Christ says, your master says, love your enemies. And that's where we ended on Sunday, up here on the board. That implies being in the sphere of love. I like to call it being in love because you know why? You're, I'm going to tell you this. I'm going to tell you why. Because I don't like that saying that much. I understand it. I'm not saying I don't understand it. If it's true, then you know that's fine. But I think all too often this world uses that phrase, in love. Oh, I'm so in love. And it's this romantic garbage. That's basically what it boils down to. It's this romantic notion of, you know, two people romantically involved. Oh, I'm, I'm just so in love. I really want this version of being in love to supplant that. To take that and throw it in the, throw it, just throw it out. <laughs> right? I want you to focus on being in love, being in the sphere of love, being in that, in love itself, because God is love. That's very different than that garbage that you read about in romance novels. There's no better place to be for you or for others than abiding in the sphere of God's love. So perspective really is everything. And this is where we ended last Thursday up here on the board, 2 Peter 2.19, For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. Whatever is able to overcome you, whatever you know, permeates you, just dominates you, you're enslaved to that. If you're abiding in the sphere of love, you are overcome by it, by love. And that is what God would call a right thing. When you abide in the sphere of love, you're overcome by love. You're enslaved to it. And God says that's a good thing. That's a righteous thing. If it's right, then it's righteous. So when Paul wrote, we are to be slaves, or we are slaves of righteousness in Romans 6.18, this is what he was getting at. We're slaves to that righteousness, to that good thing, to that being in the sphere of love. 
That's what it means to be a slave of righteousness. What's the, what's the greatest law of all right now, especially in the church? Love. So if you're abiding in that, you are righteous. That's what it means to be a slave to righteousness. It's tantamount to saying that you're abiding in the sphere of love. They're one and the same. Does that make sense? Because you're overcome by love. And love can't help but express itself. And love really can't help but lay its life down for others. Love really does want to help others, wants to reach out to orphans and widows and help out in time of need. That's what love does. That's the right thing to do. Therefore, it's righteous. And because that overwhelming desire is upon you, you are a slave to it. You can't help but respond to it. Does that make sense? That's what it means to be in the sphere of love. You're a slave of righteousness. That's a beautiful, beautiful thing. That's why at the start of class, we are slaves. Really good thing. Really, really good thing. So we step back now. And just to help us regain whatever bit of godly perspective, I don't know, that we've lost along the way. Maybe you had a rough week, a rough month. Maybe you're just having a rough year. I don't know. But the cure is always perspective. It's getting it right. Being right. It's being in love. That's the cure. God's, God, nothing's guaranteed that God's going to remove that thorn in your flesh. Some of you are like, but you don't understand. The person lives with me. I don't know. Apparently God thought that you needed that person in your life as horrible as they might seem. Somehow, some way, he's going to work it out for good. I mean, unless Romans 8.28 is a lie, God causes all things to work together for good for those who love him. Unless that's a lie, then it's got to be true. And that thorn in your flesh, that person, that thing, is there for a reason. And I say, because you don't understand. Maybe I don't, but I've got my own problems too, so don't discount what I'm saying up here. We've all got problems. Amen? Anybody here want to raise their hand and say, I've got no problems? Anybody want to raise their hand and say they've got a lot of problems? <laughs> it's, like a, it's like a wave. Woo. Right? Everybody's got problems. God doesn't guarantee that he takes them away. He actually uses them as like strength training. He uses them to kind of keep you on your toes, to keep you awake. Because if not, you'd do this number. Oh, life is just so good. And you would just snooze out. He's like, but I need you. I need you to do some work. I need you to wake up. There's, there's stuff to do here. So if we've lost perspective, uh, we're going to read an incredibly edifying passage of Holy Scripture. And so we're just going to shift gears a little now and read what I would call a triumphant passage of Holy Scripture that captures some of Jesus' final words to his disciples. And while we read this, 
keep your mind's eye on the encouragement he's instilling in his disciples and imagine the motivation building in their souls. Keep an eye on the hope that he's sowing in them as well. But mostly, for the sake of this evening's message, consider the perspective he's giving them. Consider the perspective he's giving them. And to be honest, when we read it, you're going to see that, like most of us, they don't, they don't see it right away. You know? And, and that's like most of us. How many of you want to raise your hand and say, oh man, the first time I've ever read the Bible, I just, uh, I just understood it implicitly. The first time this topic was taught from a pulpit, I was like, literally the whole time, hmm, yeah, I totally get it. Absolutely, makes total sense. Who's going to say that? Most of you are like, huh? Hmm. Then the body language comes in, tuck the chin in. Uh, this is the best one right here, right? Then they stop looking at you. They won't look at you anymore. Oh, it's, it's a classic. So they don't see it right away. And that's okay. But eventually the air begins to clear and they begin to understand what Jesus is trying to tell them. That is the actual truth that sets them free, ultimately. Ultimately, Jesus asserts that the end is already known. Remember the context here? It's one of the last time he spoke to his disciples on earth. And he says, you know what? I'm already victorious. I already know I'm the winner. And that true believers are co-victors with him, already named in the book of life. So we rightly ought to cling to this truth, especially experientially in our marriages, and our families, because that's where we're going back. Remember Proverbs 17, 6? Especially in our marriages and our families, as we've been learning in our primary course of study. So let's read Jesus' words now and be encouraged, filled with our own hope so many years later. Go to John 16, 1. John 16, 1. Let's read this. I'm going to try to stay out of the way. Let's just let Holy Scripture do its thing in each of us. Be encouraged. Grab that perspective. <clears throat> John 16, verse 1. He said, I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. In other words, you're going to be persecuted because of me. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. How great is their darkness when they think they're in the light. Verse 3, And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you, that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. I did not say these things to you from the beginning, because I was with you. But now I am going to him who sent me, and none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. You see, they're slow, slow learning. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. 
It is to your advantage that I go away. For I, if I do not go away, the Helper, that's the Spirit, will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged already. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine, therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Verse 16, a little while and you will see me no longer, and again a little while and you will see me. Jump to verse 22 for the sake of time. Verse 22, so also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. In that day you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive, that your joy may be full. I have said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. His disciples said, Ah, now you are speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. You see what he was doing there? You see the progression throughout? In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. John 16 is a wonderful synopsis of Jesus' victory over sin and death, and it serves as incredible motivation for us in time. So that connects us back to our primary course of study, where, again, family was on the docket. We've been away a little while. We're coming back. Remember Proverbs 17. Go to Proverbs 17.1. And we'll press on in the study. We'll pick up where we left off. Proverbs 17.1, we'll read through to get the full context. It's crazy. It's more than 10, 
It's part 70, and we're on verse 6. Proverbs 17, 1. Better is a dry morsel with quiet than a house full of feasting with strife. A servant who deals wisely will rule over a son who acts shamefully and will share the inheritance as one of the brothers. The crucible is for silver and the furnace is for gold, and the Lord tests hearts. An evildoer listens to wicked lips, and a liar gives ear to a mischievous tongue. Whoever mocks the poor insults his maker. He who is glad at calamity will not go unpunished. And then verse 6, Grandchildren are the crown of the aged, and the glory of children is their fathers. And that was our launching pad. And since it's been a while, and we've been all over the place since the last time we spent any real time on verse 6, the Spirit wants us to quickly grab a highlight reel before heading off to verse 7. And we want to ensure we have continuity in our minds here in this passage because it's kind of been a while. It's been a few uh, messages. Maybe the most common principle throughout this series on the topic of families has been this one. Very simple. God loves godly families. God loves godly families. And so this begs the question, what is a godly family? And we spent many messages on this, hours and hours on this thing. What the, and just for the record, if you remember, none of us have a perfectly godly family. So let's just get that off the plate. Right? I love that old saying. The only normal family is the one you don't know. Right? It's true. There's truth in that. But nonetheless, there's still a divine standard. Amen? There's still a divine standard. Just because we don't meet it, even at an individual level, even at a family level, it doesn't mean the standard doesn't exist. So this begs the question, what is then a godly family? Well, for starters... It's a family with one very important ingredient. Discipline. Discipline. I know it, sound, it sounds like, wait a minute, what? No. One very important ingredient in family, in a godly family, is discipline. Up here on the board. These are all borrowed principles. I went back months Right to where we started on verse 6, way back in the 40s, like part 40-something. I forget what it was, mid-40s? We're on part 70. The value of discipline in a family, a family without discipline is a cursed family. A family without discipline is a cursed family. This is what we learned about discipline in families. And the Spirit gave us lots of practical guidance on this topic as well. All the way down to our routines. Uh, keeping a tidy home in every sense of the word. Reading your Bibles. Men, taking your entire families to church and not asking them if they feel like going. 
Here's a famous verse up here on the board, right? Joshua 24, 15, part B. What's it say? But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. I literally have this framed above my wood stove in my living room. Doesn't mean I always hit the mark, but it's at least something to <laughs> strive for. And I don't mock it. We really don't mock it. You come to my house, there are certain um, standards. We're not like, you know, whipping people in the shape. But there are certain standards in my house. And my children of all people knew it. So, this, is this just a punchline framed on your wall at home? Or a computer desktop background? Or maybe even a tattoo or something like that? Or is it real? Because as the Spirit's been amplifying lately, life is real. This isn't, you know, this la 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 la, you know, let's just go to church, let's read our Bibles, and, you know, here's me, and this is all that stuff. No. So here's the practical advice we received on the topic of discipline in the family up here on the board. The value of discipline in the family. The earlier you establish sound discipline in the family, the happier and more peaceful your family will be in the long run. The earlier you establish sound discipline in the family, the happier and more peaceful your family will be in the long run. The Spirit wants us to know what a godly family structure looks like so that we can model our own after it and be blessed. Nobody's perfect, but at least you know the bar. At least you know what a godly family looks like so that when you strive for that, you're blessed. At least you know God's being up front. God's being honest. He's saying, this is what it looks like in my friends. It has a lot to do with discipline. A heck of a lot to do with discipline in every sense of the word in the home. So I guess tonight's the night of raising hands. Pretend. Raise your hand if you don't want a happy and blessed family life. I mean, who doesn't? Now, the beautiful thing about a blessed family life is that it bears wonderful, lasting fruit in the souls of those who grow up in it. Up here on the board. Teaching us love. Remember this principle? God uses godly families to teach children about his love from a practical perspective. From a practical perspective. God uses godly families to teach children about his love from a practical perspective. The divine institutions of marriage and family are actually the platforms God uses to teach others about his love. It's the little microcosm, remember? It's the microcosm called the family that teaches us about God's family. Where else do you, where's the first place you should learn what love is? In the family. But if mom and dad are too preoccupied with themselves, guess what happens? You don't learn it. 
and you get sent out in the world and you don't even know what love is. You have a hard time relating to people because mom and dad were defunct, on hiatus, too preoccupied with their own problems. Remember the start of class? You focus on loving others, you let God love you. Mom and dad, you need to listen to that. You focus on loving your children. Let God take care of you. Stop being so selfish and self-absorbed. You worry about taking care of your children. When you had children, you decided to have children. God blessed you with children. You love them. You surrender your own life when you have children in that way. Remember that, parents. Godly families aren't necessarily the end goal. Rather, they are the vehicle. If you want to think really big picture, because not everybody stays at home for the rest of their life. It happens, but whatever. It sets the context for love to shine. It says we're going to train them up. We're going to discipline. We're going to have love in this family. And then they're going to go out. And so it's, a, it's a, like a, a, a training ground. It's where we, we train our children up. That's the divine design for a family. It often feels like in America that's very rare. But how many people love Jesus in America? It feels like not many. And if they do, sometimes they come to Christ late. You know what I'm saying? After there's been mayhem for a while in the family. And that's why there's no condemnation in my, in my voice. I have to teach this straight up because that's what the Bible says to teach. It is what it is. I'm not going to sugarcoat God's divine standard. I'm not going to do what a lot of churches do. And they lower the standard because, God forbid, I offend anyone. Right? I'm not here to, to accommodate human flesh. That would make me a terrible pastor. You don't want that guy. You want someone who tells you the truth, right? If I love you more, you're going to love me less? Probably. It's a lot harder to have these conversations with the family than it is if I just come in here and go, you're all just swell people, right? You all be like, oh, I love this guy. I love him. I come in here and teach the truth, and people are like, Look, this is about love. The point of the board is about love in a family. And the thing about love is that love sets a really high bar. If it's true love, true love sets a really high bar. True godly love cannot help but express itself. Otherwise, one has to ask themselves if it's true love in view in the first place. Godly love sets the standard. And it's a high standard. Up here on the board, <clears throat> on marriage and family, we believers are held to a higher standard. And remember, man does not set the bar. God does. God does. The world will tell you that, you know, this is, this is just one lie. So long as you go to work, and your kids aren't dead due to parental neglect, you've done your job. 
As long as you put a roof over their head and they're not star, you know, they're not dead. Well, good for you. You didn't kill your kids today. You didn't neglect them so much that they're dead. You want an award? I mean, that's today's society, right? I want a trophy because I just showed up. You don't get a trophy for showing up, parents. You actually have to love your children. You actually have to get over yourselves and love your children. But that's not the world. That's not what the world says, is it? Not at all. Not at all. That couldn't be further from the truth. As parents, our job is to raise our children up in the faith. Number one. Love them enough to raise them up in the faith. But you don't know, I've got to drag them here kicking and screaming. Then you know what? Drag them here kicking and streaming. I'll probably give you a call after and go, that was awesome. For real. Good for you. Show them who's boss. Your job as a parent is to raise your children up in the faith. And here's the, here's the whopper. In the most real sense, this is how we protect our children. Your job is to raise them up in the faith. This is how you protect your children. Fending off robbers, while noble, isn't the highest bar. It's not the high bar. Love desires uh, company, right? When it's true love in a family, that parent says, I want those little munchkins that I love, you know, I love them so much. I want them with me because with me is Christ. Nobody can touch one of his own. Amen? Nobody. I'm not talking someone can walk up to you and punch you. That's not the point. I'm talking about being transcendent. I'm talking about being protected for life. Long after you, the parent, dies. This child's good to go because you raised them up in the faith. Even when they were saying, I hate you. Okay. But I've got a job to do. Go ahead and hate me. We'll see how it turns out in the end. You'll thank me. So love, true love, desires company, right? It desires others to be in love, in the sphere of love. And in there, you're ultimately protected. You cannot protect your children the way the Lord can. So you raise them up in the faith so that he can put his loving arms around them. And at that point, it doesn't matter what happens to you. Sorry. At that point, they're protected for life. That's your job. It's a much higher standard, you see. Up here on the board, perspective on marriage and family. A higher standard implies greater responsibility. However, 
this also means more opportunity to bring glory to God in time. I'm sure there are some people, especially men of the cowardice type, that go, I don't like all this responsibility. This is too much pressure. What can I tell you? And they'll shy away from it. But what they're missing out on is actually bringing glory to God. Step up. Be a man. Step up. Bring glory to God. Satan in the kingdom of darkness knows full well that if you don't protect your family with the word of God, remember the word is called the sword, if you don't protect your family with the word of God, then others, possibly malevolent, will begin to pick up the slack in your absence while your back is turned. Your family becomes infected and diseased because you didn't protect them with the word. You didn't raise them up in the faith. And then you send them off at 18, 20, whatever the going rate is nowadays. You send them off into the world that just chews them up and spits them out. And they're, not, they're unprotected. And in that way, especially if you're a believer while you have them, you failed. I know that's harsh language, but you failed them. And so much of this comes back to men. So much. Who's the head of the household? Men. Up here on the board. Men, protect your family. Do not allow people from outside of your family to infiltrate it. Be vigilant on God, ready to ward off the wolves in sheep's clothing. Remember, attacks often come from where you least expect it. Psalm 55, 12 to 14. Some of you are like, don't I know the truth? Don't I know that? My wife left me with my best friend. Or for my best friend. What? Tell me that hasn't happened. Some friend you got there. Guess you had your back turned, huh? Guess you were too busy tipping a few back. Not really interested in the word of God, I see. Didn't have any real discernment. While he was poking around by, behind your back. This requires... Discipline. Remember at the start of class? Discipline. And it starts with the men. Discipline. It means, look, you are responsible for your wife and your children in that house. And you're supposed to protect it. Remember David's aha moment? Hold your thumb there. Go to Psalm 55.12. We're almost out of time, but... I'm glad we made it this far. Psalm 55, 12. Remember David? He was like, oh, this, this just breaks your heart. When, you, when I read this passage, it's heartbreaking. Psalm 55, 12. 
For it is not an enemy who taunts me, then I could bear it. Kind of expect that. It is not an adversary who deals insolently with me. Then I could hide from him. But it is you, a man, my equal, my companion, my familiar friend. We used to take sweet counsel together. Within God's house, we walked in the throng. You're my betrayer. That was David's aha moment. Jeez, of all places for attacks to come from, it's the ones closest to us? Yeah, that's why they call it vulnerability. When you let anybody near you, you're vulnerable. You begin to trust them. That's why you have to choose your friends wisely, especially when it comes to your family. Men, you're, you're almost, and I'm going to say this, it's going to sound funny, but you're almost better off having zero friends. If, you're, if you've got like a wife and children, you're better off almost having zero friends. Just call them your friends. <laughs> right? Just make them your friends. Because people, all people have fleshes. Just saying. Again, up here on the board, men, protect your family. Do not allow people from outside of your family to infiltrate it. Be vigilant, on guard, ready to ward off the wolves in sheep's clothing. Remember, attacks often come from where you least expect it. Again, the fruit of a godly family stretches for generations. Up here on the board, I think I'll end here with this pair of Principles from a few messages back now, probably in the 50s or 60s, I don't know. The value of a family, or the value of family. Disciplined, well-adjusted children from godly homes make for great subordinates because authority orientation was instilled in them at an early age, and they are blessed for it and become blessings for others, especially those in authority. What does it take? What's the core of authority orientation? Discipline. That's why the military is such a great example of authority orientation, because it's all based on discipline. That's the value of a disciplined family. Disciplined, well-adjusted children from a godly home make for great subordinates because authority orientation was instilled in them at an early age, and they are blessed for it. Every person I've ever met, ever, that had issues with authority was miserable. Every single one of them, bar none. Even if they had the so-called upper hand, if they... If they had that superiority complex, like, but I'm winning this game. They were miserable because they lacked authority orientation. They lacked discipline. They were ultimately then insecure. What good is a building without any integrity to it? The wind comes and blows it right over. Most of those people are glass houses. You press them a little bit and they flip the hell out. Why? because they're miserable. They don't have authority orientation. They don't have any constitution. 
And therefore, they're miserable because they know it. Here's the corollary. I just described it. Undisciplined, maladjusted children from ungodly homes make for horrible subordinates because authority orientation was never instilled in them. And they are cursed for it and become a cursing for others, especially those in authority. And so I'll give you this in conclusion. One last principle. Godliness in families pays dividends for life. Godliness in families pays dividends for life. Listen, if you love your children, when they turn of age where they go, I'm out of here, don't you want them to be protected? Amen? All right, let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for giving us these messages. Truth that sets us free, Father. It's difficult pill to swallow sometimes, Father, because none of us are perfect as individuals or as families. But we love you for giving us the divine standard, Father. It is the truth that sets us free after all. We just ask your blessings as we take the things we've learned back to the privacy of our own homes. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Thank you.